Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry over there. Lights are turned down here. Mm-hmm. We got our uh, groovy pad going. Super swinging <laughs> style. Why well, I, I couldn't get square. Could I? Couldn't get more square? Is that what you're saying? Squarer? Squarer. Yeah. Square. Square. <laughs> well, could I answer my question? Uh, you're not square. I bet you got a lava lamp in your house. I don't, actually. I never have. Really? Never have had one. Have you? I've, I've, I would love one. I think I had one. I think we had one in college in one of our houses. Mm-hmm. I doubt very seriously it was a uh, trademark original lava lamp. Lava uh-huh. lamp. Yeah. But um, it was probably a knockoff because I don't think it worked great. There's a lot of knockoffs for those. Things. Yeah, you can get little cheapies now. They're just no good. Right. You want the, the real one. Yeah, and I think if for no other reason than to support uh, the original, the OG. Stuff handmade in the UK. Yeah, still. Uh, yeah. You believe that? I do, actually. That's great. Based on, on the, the woman who owns it now, she seems like the type who would just be like, sticking to it. Yep. Uh, yep. I could make way more money, but I'm not going to because this is the way it should be done. Yeah. This is how it started. I'm staying with tradition. That's how she does it. So we're talking about lava lamps. And actually, Chuck, can you just give me a second here? Yes. Before we get started? Yes. Can I give a little plug? Sure. Okay. So um, as you know, but I want to share with everybody else, on October 8th, I will be doing a live show on existential risks. It's called Existential Risks or How I Learned to Start Worrying and Love Humanity. It's a pretty great show. Yeah. Um, there's slides involved. There's um, doom and gloom, <laughs> maybe a little bit of optimism. Who knows? But there's some humor mixed in. It's going to be a pretty good show. Um, I did a similar show at the Bell House a couple years back. This is a totally brand new show. So even if you saw it then, this will be new to you. But it's October 8th at the Bell House. And if you happen to want to go, tickets are available at thebellhouseny.com. Dude, I would be there with bells on. I will list you. But uh, I'll be in California. Well, I'm going to list you anyway. <laughs> yeah, like uh, former Falcons coach Jerry Glanville used to leave tickets for Elvis at every Falcons game. That's smart. It's stupid because those are two tickets that could have gone to me. Oh, that's a good point. Just dumb. Oh, hey, did you? Uh, are you going to be on the radio for the Chiefs? No. Yeah, you, uh, you turned it down. I, f- I kept forgetting to respond. Uh, I was out of town. So it already came and went? Yeah, it was just, uh, for those of you wondering why we're just talking and <laughs> chit-chatting. <laughs> uh, and I wish I had his name. Can you find it? The um, Some of the guys from the Voice of the Kansas City Chiefs radio, mm-hmm. uh, they, they played a preseason game against the Falcons this last Friday in Atlanta and invited us to be on the field and in the booth. Yep. And I was out of town. For my niece's wedding, congratulations, Shelby and Dan. Oh, hey, yeah, congrats. And uh, it was two family weddings, two out-of-town family wedding weekends in a row. Yep. So uh, congratulations also to Alex and Catherine. Uh, Alex is Emily's cousin. Okay. So we went to Columbus, Ohio, and then Jacksonville, North Carolina. Lucky. Went to these weddings, and uh, I was not able to go to the Falcons game. Well, that's quite a sacrifice because a guy named Dan Israel. Dan 
Dan invited us to hang out in the broadcast booth yeah. for the preseason game between the Falcons and the Chiefs. I would have been so all over that. And I presumed <laughs> to, to help call the game some. Oh, yeah? I would guess. I'm pretty sure he would have put us on. Well, I told him I emailed him back, said thanks. But uh, if you ever come back, let me know. I'm I, into it. I, I, I just remembered I got to respond to him and say, thanks. Can I come? <laughs> I just need to fire up the Wayback Machine. So uh, so that's a lot of chit-chat. Yeah, if you don't like our asides and tangents and stuff, I'll bet you hate this episode already. But the net-net of all that is... I'm doing a live show Josh at the Bell doing a live show at the Bell <laughs> <laughs> The net-net of all that is that we're about to talk lava lamps, dude. That's the net-net, you yeah. corporate goon. This was. I think you've wanted to do this one for a bit, right? No. No? Okay. I just made that up then. No, I, I, um, I was like... Trying to come up with an episode idea, sometimes it's harder than others. I don't know if you've noticed. It's getting tougher. But um, The world's getting smaller. I, I remembered we did that one on um, food fads. Mm-hmm. I was like, that was an interesting episode. Yeah. Let me go see if I can find another fad. And one of them that came up was this pet uh, rocks? article about lava lamps. Oh, okay. Ooh, maybe we should do pet rocks one day. <laughs> so I was like, all right, let me see if this is any good. And it was okay. But then I found an article by Zachary Crockett on Priceonomics which is one of the better websites of all time. Yeah. Zachary Crockett is one of the better, like, nonfiction magazine writers of all time. Agreed. On the web. Yeah. And um, this article, The Lava Lamp Just Won't Quit, really kind of gave a boost to the stuff on how stuff works. Yeah, so let's go back in time. Let's hop in the old Wayback Machine. Well, and speaking of, we actually have Wayback Machine t-shirts now. I know. At, at our tpublic.com store. Yeah. Got a, a bunch of different merch now. All right. But we're in our own version of the Wayback Machine. <laughs> right. Which is better than what's on that t-shirt. Okay. <laughs> and we're going back to 1918 in the county of Dorset in England. And a little boy named Edward Craven Walker is born. He would grow up. And we follow him in the Wayback Machine as he's growing. Mm-hmm. He eventually becomes an RAF pilot in World War II. Right. Looks like everything's going normal and smoothly. Yeah. He he actually flew uh, recon missions, photographic missions. Okay. Where they would, you know, go up in planes and take pictures of what the enemy's doing. Right. And uh, he eventually, the war ended. And after the war, he said, I'm going to go live in this little trailer in London behind a pub mm-hmm. and build a... Uh, Travel agency. Yeah, he actually created a, a home swapping program like Airbnb. Wow. But this is in like the 50s. Interesting. Yeah, he's pretty ahead of his time. He was in a lot of ways, it seemed like. So uh, again, everything's going pretty normally, right? Yeah, he's just he's just travel agenting and doing quite well at it, I think. And uh, he goes to the, the southern coast of France and what this author calls a life-changing trip. Uh, and he comes back. A, a nudist filmmaker. Underwater nudist filmmaker. <laughs> I think he did drugs down there. What do you think what that means? I just think he took his clothes off for the first time ever oh. and was like, well, I <laughs> had never really noticed the breeze before. This is nice. You think? Yeah. It just feels like drugs were involved. It's possible, but he seemed to not really think too highly of drugs. So I think it was well, more just like... Actually, he, you're probably right. He became a nudist is what it was. Yeah, I think you're right. So he he took his clothes off for the first time. He was a never nude before that. Right. And uh, in 1960, he actually, under a pseudonym, made a movie called Traveling Light. It was a short film with a naked lady performing underwater ballet that, believe it or not, 
did okay in, in London. It had a six-month run. When's the last movie you knew had a six-month run at a major theater in London? Titanic? Maybe. Yeah. It was lucky. Probably Avatar is the last one. <laughs> Probably so. So that was actually, Chuck, part of a trilogy. Titanic? No, Travel and Light. Oh, what were the other two? Sunswept? Because I was trying to get information. I was trying to watch it, and I couldn't find any. I'll bet you were. Um, <laughs> I know. I couldn't find it either. But there, I found some mention of it, and I saw the movie poster for it or whatever. Yeah, I saw that. Um, but it was, it, it was, I think, preceded by a movie called Eves on Skis, Nudist Skiing Trip. <laughs> okay. Sunswept sounded like what, what this is describing as um, Travel and Light. And then Travel and Light was actually, I think, the second of the three. It's actually a sweet little mm. trilogy. Pre-porn time and humanity when like, yeah, like, hey, here's just a naked person skiing. Right. That's it, as titillating as we get. I've seen it referred to as nudist propaganda films. Yeah. Which is basically like, look, this is like, this is the life. I went to the south of France. Now you can too. And it's certainly not pre-porn. I was kidding about that. We we should do oh, no. an episode on pornography. Uh, I was going to say, we've done one on nudism. Yeah. Nude, nude beaches, at least. Yeah, we should do one on porn. That'd be good. We should. That that could be a two-parter. That's Maybe even like three or four. Yeah. Maybe five or six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll All right. Like, I'm Rusty and this is Eugene. <laughs> this is porn you should know. So um, here's the thing about Edwin Craven Walker's Film, um, film career. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> he he was very successful at it. He became something of a legend, and he invested his money in building a nudist camp. Yeah, he's like, I got all this dough. Yep, and here's what I want to do with it. So I'm sure a few of you are like, I thought this is about lava lamps. <laughs> yeah, chill out. Now we've reached the part where the lava lamps come in. That's right. And the lava lamps come in one day, and I think the mid fifties where um, Edward Craven Walker, and I believe it's hyphenated, actually. Craven Walker is his last name. Oh, is that the deal? Yep. And he's hanging out in a pub called the Queen's Head, the Queen's Head that's in New Forest in the southwest of London. And he's sitting at a bar ordering a beer, pint, and um, he notices on the bar, along with the liquor bottles, Mm -hmm. there's a cocktail shaker, but there's weird bubbles floating around in it. Yeah, a glass one, too, not like a steel one. Right, and there's actually, you can see pictures of it on the uh, Mathmos site. Oh, really? The, the original thing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so he's sitting there about to drink, like you said, and it's got water and oil, and there's a little camp stove underneath it heating it, and uh, it, you know, it looks like a little, what would become a, a lava lamp. It's got the oils and little blobs and it's floating around. Yeah. And it's the thing that we all recognize now. But when this dude sees it back then and no one had ever seen anything like this, uh-huh. he was like, wow, what, would, what is that? Right. And the bartender was like, that's an egg timer. Yeah, kind of a weird answer. But that's weird. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's what the lava lamp started out as, is an egg timer. There was a guy named uh, that's Alf. a great trivia question. Uh, it is. Mm-hmm. A guy named Alfred Dunnett. who was a regular at the Queen's Head in New Forest, um, had built this thing where it was this glass cocktail shaker on a camp stove, just a little tiny camp stove, Mm -hmm. um, and he put oil in the water. And when the oil rose to the top, by the time it took to heat up and rise to the top, it meant that your egg was fully hard-boiled. It was an egg timer. Yeah. But 
Edward Craven Walker saw this and said, no, no, no. This is way more than an egg timer. This is the most mesmerizing thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And so he did it right. He found out that Alfred Dennett had passed away, but apparently he had a patent on this egg timer. So Edward Craven Walker went to to um, the uh, widow of yeah. Alfred Dunnett and said, hey, how about you sell me this patent? The history of bad deals. But here's the thing. You go ahead and I'm going to retort, okay? Well, I mean, I might even retort for you because – when you look at the the history of business and bad deals, uh-huh. he got this patent for less than twenty pounds, but at the same time, Dunnett's widow was probably like, "What in the world? Why would anyone ever care about this?" Right. It, it's just sitting there. Yeah. And not only that, this guy doesn't want to make an egg timer. He wants to make something bigger out of this thing. Yeah, so right. he actually rescued a patent from obscurity and improved on it. And by the way, West Egg doesn't convert for pounds. It's strictly USD. But there's a site called I Am Kate, okay. which does um, inflation calculation for pounds. Oh, interesting. So 20 pounds, according to I Am Kate, says uh, it would be about 783 pounds today. Which is uh, about $1,000. Uh, yeah, roughly. So that's not bad. Yeah. Uh, here's 1000 bucks that you were totally not expecting for something you were never going to do anything with. Yeah. I'm going to take it and present it to the world. Yeah, so he gets a bottle. Um, it's called Treetop Orange Squash. It was a drink that he used to drink as a kid I in England. I think it's still around. I think so. It's, I don't think it has this original shape, but the shape of that bottle it more or less is sort of what the shape of the glass of the any lava lamp that you see today looks like. Yeah, you look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, of course. That yeah. would be the prototype. And so he gets this thing. He gets a couple of uh, liquids. It is not oil and water like uh, I probably thought before I researched this. It is water and wax. Right. And they are what's known, and we'll get into the science in a minute, but mutually insoluble, meaning uh, that they don't dissolve into one another like oil and water. Sure. And he adds a few other little chemicals here and there and got a little light bulb, screwed it into a base and kind of hooked it all up. And bada bing, bada boom, the astro lamp, <laughs> the astro lamp, as he called it, was born. Yeah. Or was it astro light? Astro lamp. Okay, that's, the astro lamp. That's another trivia question for you. The original name of the lava lamp was the astro lamp. Should we take a break? I think so. All right, we'll be back right after this and talk about science. <laughs> All right, Chuck, science. (laughs) We're going to talk science because there's actually some physics behind the lava lamp, and we're going to explain it because it's actually understandable. Yeah. Who was the guy who wrote this again? Zachary Crockett. But this is a How Stuff Works article that explains the physics. Oh, the inside the lamp part? Yep. Because I thought that was kind of cute, actually. The bullet points for that are Mm. the things that you need are a compound that makes up floating blobs. Blobs in quotes. A compound that the blob floats in. There wasn't in quotes that time. And then a lamp that illuminates the display and provides the necessary heat to move the blobs. Again, no quotes. Yeah. That's it, though. 
But that's what, yeah, what you need. But we're going to talk about more science as far as uh, mutually insoluble liquids go. Right, because it sounds really easy, right? Yeah. You got your blobs, you got your liquid that the blobs float in, you got your light to heat the whole thing up. Easy peasy. It's mm -hmm. actually really hard because what you're walking is a very fine line between something that will work as a lava lamp and something that will just not work at all. Yeah. and Or look like a lava lamp gone bad. Right, exactly. Um, so you've got, you've got immiscible compounds, compounds that don't um, dissolve into one another. But you need to have them. They, they need to have pretty similar densities. Yeah. Not exactly the same because then it won't work. But not too different either, because then that won't work either. And you'll understand why in a second. They need to be fairly close. And so the reason why um, Edward, Edward Craven Walker used wax and water is because water, plain old fresh water, mm -hmm. has a density of 1.0. It's basically the set point for densities. Uh, paraffin wax has a density of 0.8, which means that it's slightly less dense than water. But close. Right. Very close. So if you heat up... Uh, something, it tends to expand, right? Correct. When it expands, it becomes less dense, which means that something that was more dense before will be less dense, meaning that if it's in some other liquid that's denser, this less dense thing will float to the top. Yeah. If it's less dense, it rises. If it's more dense, it will fall. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why, you know, if you want to change this density and, and make these molecules uh, spread out. Right. One of the things you can do, especially in the case of a lava lamp, is to heat it up. Right. That's the point of that bulb at the bottom of the lava lamp. Yeah, because if you see a lava lamp that's not turned on, you just see the blob at the bottom. Right. And the the fluid, it's not water, of course, mm -hmm. uh, sitting at the top. And they're separated, but they're just sitting on top of one another. Right. And it actually is water. Oh, is it really? Uh-huh. I thought it was something else too. They add some other water. some other stuff, but the the liquid that the blobs are in is mostly water. Oh, okay. Yeah. So here's the thing: when you turn on a lava lamp, you turn that that heat that you start the heat of the light bulb. Yes. And that wax begins to warm up and it liquefies, and as it liquefies, it becomes less dense. Yeah, and things get really exciting at that point. Right, and then it starts to flow to the top, yeah. right? Yeah. You're like, all right, things are happening. It actually <laughs> forms what are called stalactites. Yeah, and everyone's like, you feeling it yet? Right, <laughs> right. And as it starts to form stalactites, they eventually, the tops of them break off. Yep. And it floats up to the top, and you're mm -hmm. like, hmm, this is awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely feeling it. <laughs> and then um, as it gets to the top of the lamp, it's far enough away from the heat source mm -hmm. that it starts to cool down. And so it sinks again to the bottom. Beautiful. And as it does, it passes another glob that's on the way to the top. And then when it reaches the bottom, the whole process starts over again. And that wax glob gets reheated, and it goes back up, and it passes on the way up the glob that it just passed coming back down. Yeah. And that's a lava lamp. And it again, it sounds simple, but to get the wax density oh, yeah. and the water density just right, you have to add some other ingredients. And so going back to the original prototype that was created by Edward Craven Walker, it's really impressive sure. that this guy with zero chemistry training whatsoever yeah. managed to do this ever, let alone in just less than a decade. Yeah, I mean, I imagine there was a lot of trial and error trying to get that thing just right mm -hmm. because again like I said if I mean you think it sounds easy go build one on your own 
and and prepare to be disappointed. And you can. You can make one with oil, water, uh, food coloring, and then uh, Alka-Seltzer. It's called called a janky lava lamp. It's terrible. (laughs) But this is nothing like this. Yeah, because what the the whole point of a lava lamp is to create this mood and to have these amorphous blobs separating and floating around and rising and falling. And Mm -hmm. that's the whole effect, you know. It wasn't meant to be a lamp to give much light. It's to create mood and atmosphere. Right. And as we will see, we keep making little druggy jokes. Uh, That was a big part of why they sold. Right. But But, we'll get to that in a minute. Right. But you were talking about the fact that it was impressive. Uh, It says only five or six people actually know this exact formula still Mm -hmm. that who work for the real lava lamp company. Yeah. And there are plenty of knockoffs. uh, But that original uh, that original lava lamp recipe is is not known by many people. Very closely guarded. Yeah. Even in Craven Walker's original patent. It has the ingredients, but it doesn't say in what quantities or anything like that. It's still a trade secret to this day. Yeah, and you also, he figured you had to, uh, there was a lot of trial and error because he had to add the water um, very slowly, apparently, or else it becomes what's known as an emulsion, meaning it's just sort of mixed together. Yeah, like you can conceivably mix oil and water together, especially if you have an emulsifier, but you can also do it by stirring it really, really fast, and yeah. it'll it'll mix together, and that's not what you want. You want them to be separate from the first moment they come in contact together in the lamp globe. Right. So 1963, uh, three years, I think it took him to finally get the design right. He called it the Astro Lamp. He built a little factory in his backyard, uh, and his wife at the time, I think he was married four times, but she was like, you know, he was the type of guy that would finish this thing once he started it. Right. And he did. And originally he decided that it was, it fit really well in with this post-World War II British demand for very flamboyant, colorful home furnishings. Yeah. He's like, this is nothing if not flamboyant and colorful. Yeah. The original lava lamp was uh, yellow liquid water Mm -hmm. and red wax globs Mm -hmm. on a gold base. Great looking, I bet. Groovy, yeah. as groovy gets, uh-huh. right? Um, but he originally envisioned it as like, this is something for a cool bachelor pad. If you're a wealthy bachelor and you're looking to put something that's very interesting and high-end as a home furnishing, mm-hmm. try the Astro Lamp. It was originally envisioned as a, a high-end home furnishing. Yeah, there, uh, there's this one great ad that had a the scene of a bachelor pad on a magazine page, and the caption said, the perfect gift for one's relatives, <laughs> one's friends, and dash it all oneself. Yeah. Why <laughs> so, not buy three? Yeah, exactly. Buy three of them. Yep. I so, love it. This actually didn't work out very well for Craven Walker because he and his wife were driving around in their van going to places like Herod's and getting a very chilly reception to yeah. these things. Apparently, the Herod's buyer thought the lamps were disgusting and ordered them taken away. Yeah. I, I don't know why. can't imagine seeing them as disgusting. Well. Maybe there was like pubic hair stuck to the outside <laughs> of them or something. That could make a lava lamp disgusting, right? Well, I imagine at the time, especially in stuffy old England, uh, this post-war transition wasn't uh, met with open arms by everybody. Right. I'm sure the traditionalists thought it was disgusting, this blobby thing floating around. I guess, especially with the pubic hair. <laughs> God. So, um. Stop. Craven Walker, uh, he he was like, well, fine. I'm just going to create my own company and I'll market it myself. So he formed Crestworth, 
which is the original company that put out the Astro Lamp, which we know and love as lava lamps. And I should say, there are a lot of different names for lava lamps. Yeah. And it's really tough to distinguish which one is actual trademark. So lava lamp seems to be a generic term. Lava light seems to be generic, but lava, all caps, is a trademark name for the American version. Okay. But there doesn't seem to be a trademark name for the lava lamp, the original one, in England. Oh, really? They just call it a lava lamp. I thought it was lava lamp was the trademark because— Not that I can see. Our dumb article calls them motion lamps. Well, that's the— And I thought that was the, to avoid— The generic term. Yeah, I thought they were doing that to avoid saying lava lamp. No, that's so, like, 2005 how stuff works. <laughs> it like, really call it the generic term. You know, <laughs> it's not Kleenex, it's facial tissue. You know? Yeah. That's that's totally where, why they call it that. Oh, goodness, you're so right. Uh, all right, so these things aren't selling— to the rich and powerful. They did not see it as a luxury item. But then the 1960s are rolling along. LSD comes on the scene. <laughs> Pink Floyd is uh, in the back room. The Yardbirds are up front. Sid Barrett is freaking out. He's freaking out. And this thing really, the Astro Lamp really fit in uh, to this whole scene. Like he was just... He was mismarketing this thing from the beginning. He was. I I, don't, I think he didn't predict the the 60s psychedelic. He was more into like the swinging Austin Powers Bachelor stuff that was pre-psychedelic yeah. and moved into psychedelia. Um, but he should thank his lucky stars, and I'm sure he did more than once, that the psychedelic thing happened because when that happened and the hippies in London found out about lava lamps, lava lamps took off. Oh, yeah. Just shot off like a rocket. And at first, Edward Craven Walker was not not entirely cool with this. I mean, he was happy to have the money and yeah. that his lamp was finally a success. But he knew what people were buying these for. They were buying them so that they could take acid and stare at him for eight hours, right? <laughs> yeah. And he actually had an ad where he said, if you buy my lamp, you won't need drugs, which is L7. Yeah, because the ad should have read, this goes great with drugs. Right. <laughs> like drugs? You're going to love my lamp. Like that is the level of dedication this guy should have had to LSD because LSD made him a very wealthy person like in a very short amount of time. Should we take a break? Yeah. All right. We're, we're going to talk about uh, how they hit America right after this. <laughs> All right, so they're taking off in England. Uh, he takes these things to a trade show in Germany in 1965, and a couple of dudes named uh, Adolf Wertheimer and <laughs> William Rubenstein. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they didn't say their names like that. They're from Chicago. Yeah, so they were uh, just good Midwestern Germans. Yeah, and they said, "I'm gonna, I want to buy, to, I want to buy the North American manufacturing rights. Uh, we're gonna call it the Lava Light, L-I-T-E, mm -hmm. and." We have our own uh, drug culture that's starting to boom over here, and I think these would be a big hit. Right. And they were, and they got them on TV. They got placement. They got them in Doctor Who. That was huge. 
Got it in the Avengers. Uh, not, you know, the old TV show, The Avengers. Yeah, it says here, though, it was on James Bond, and I looked high and low for what they were talking about, and I actually came across a post on the internet, of all places, <laughs> by a um, a a guy who who runs a website. Oh, Anthony Vaz runs a website. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I think maybe Lava Love or something like that. Uh-huh. But he was on there saying, I saw this in an article that it says it was in a James Bond film. What James Bond film are they talking about? On like a James Bond like mm-hmm. fan forum? They're like, no idea, bud. And if we don't know, it didn't happen. Well, so I have no idea what, what James Bond film it was in. The first giveaway to me that that's bogus is here's the sentence. A red model debuted in a 1970—I'm sorry, 68—episode of Doctor Who. This is followed by appearances in The Prisoner, The Avengers, and James Bond. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, talk about generic. Remember that movie, James Bond? Sure. We should ask uh, the great Matt Gorley. Does he know James Bond? Of the Super Ego podcast, yeah. Okay. He's an aficionado. He hosts well, a, there you go. a podcast called James Bonding. There you go. I bet Gorley would know. So on that forum, somebody's like, maybe that Woody Allen spoof Casino Royale, but I couldn't find any mention of Lava Lamps in that movie either. So who knows? But they made some product placement. Uh, they were they were starting to pop up all over the place. And apparently, uh, Edward Craven Walker knew that he'd made it. His wife later recounted when they found out that Ringo Starr had just bought one in 1968. I love it. He also might know he made it by the fact that he sold 7 million of them annually by the end of the 60s. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he was so uh, eccentric that he would he drove a fire truck. Yeah, he'd ride around in a fire truck. Yeah. He also um, drove nothing, if it was a car, nothing but British-made Jaguars. Oh, well. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Sure. Um, well, it depends on the year because they had really? some pretty terrible <laughs> Jaguars for a while there in the 80s. Uh, so these, uh, like any fad, would go away. And in the late 70s, the lava lamp, I, I remember the lava lamps kind of just weren't around that much anymore No, by the time we were kids. They didn't even have like kitschy appeal any longer. They were just like, like everyone became the Herod's buyer. Like these are disgusting. Get them out of here. But... He was smart enough to know that fads come back around. He did not shut down the business. He did not just sell it off for pennies on the dollar. No, he kept releasing new stuff. Yeah, nothing really took. I tried to find any, like, his other little inventions, but I couldn't really get much. Yeah. So nothing made uh, the waves that the Astro Lamp did. And by the late 1980s, uh, they declined to about 1,000 lamps per year. That is so few. From 7 million a year. Yeah, that, I mean, even... You would think you'd get a thousand like white elephant gift purchases. Sure. Like, look, this is the dumbest thing I could find. I mean, I guess that's what they were. So a thousand a year at that point. And uh, then a woman that we mentioned earlier named uh, Cressida Granger uh-huh. or Cressida Granger. Great name. She's 22 years old, ran an antique booth and saw these things were selling like the vintage ones, these used lava lamps. This is back in like 1989, I think. Yeah, and so she was like, these things are kind of selling. She got in touch with the guy, with Craven Walker, and said, hey, I'd like to buy your company or partner with you in Crestworth if you're open to it. He said, fine, meet me at this nudist camp. <laughs> and she went, all right, keep your pants on and I'll do so. Right. And by all accounts, uh, they were fully clothed <laughs> and struck up a deal where she would take over operations and managing 
uh, as managing director. And they had a deal in place, and a great deal for her, right. where she could slowly buy his company from him over time. Right. So so think about being 22 and having that kind of like get up and go. I love it. That you're like, I'm starting to sell some vintage lava lamps. I'll go see if I can buy the company. Yeah. But then from from Craven Walker's perspective, you're like, I'm down to selling a thousand of these a year. Why not take Nothing a flyer? I'm trying. Yeah. If yeah. this person wants to like like invest in the company, why not? And so Cressida Granger's timing could not have been better. Yeah. Like she was really prescient to notice that like the vintage lava lamps were selling. Mm -hmm. The reason the vintage lava lamps were selling was because there was an acid revival going on. Mm -hmm. The same reason lava lamps sold the first time around is the reason they sold the second time around. Everybody discovered that they really, really like LSD and lava lamps go really, really well with LSD. Well, and not only that, but that was with the, uh you know, house music and ecstasy and raves and uh, Austin Powers, like that whole thing kind of came back well, in Austin a big way. Pa- Austin Powers was like a th- kind of a third wave. Yeah, that was mid to late 90s. Yeah, like I think 97. Yeah. So she oversaw a revival of the lava lamp, a resurgence in it, and uh, like saw the manufacturing uptick in it too yeah. in the – late 80s, early 90s, and then managed to ride that wave through to the late 90s when it ticked up even further because of Austin Powers. And they started to sell so much. Cressida Granger says they sold more in the 90s than they did in the 60s. That's amazing. Yeah. And she started the whole thing at 22 going up to Edward Craven Walker and saying, how about it, partner? Yeah. And so uh, in 1991, the 20-year patent expired and uh, Granger said that, you know, no one realized this, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. And so we just kind of kept monopolizing the business. And she slowly bought it out over time. And I think by 92, she renamed the company uh, Mathmus, which apparently was a tip of the cap to Barbarella, the film. Yeah. that's There's like an energy bubble that it lives underneath the city or something Great called name. Mathmus. And that's what it's called today, yeah. if you go to the website. Yep. Uh, she moved into the manufacturing facility. So she didn't say, hey, let's take this stateside or take it to China. No. She said, we're going to keep doing it right here in Dorset. And like you said at the beginning, that is still where these things are made today by hand, by British workers. In Dorset. Like, I think they said, how many of them can uh, a good worker make in a day? 400. Amazing. So, Fill in these bottles by hand. Right. So that's if you look at the Mathmus um, lava lamps, and compare the price to one you just find online, like yeah. a knockoff, um, which technically they're not a knockoff because the patent w- wore off. Right. But um, still a knockoff. In it's my it's like eighty bucks compared to like fifteen or twenty bucks for what looks to be the same thing. Yeah, more, reason, actually more like a hundred seventy-seven pounds. That's how much Mathmus is now. Yeah, like their standard, the original classic lava lamp is seventy-seven pounds. Gotcha. The reason why they're that much more is because they're handmade in the UK, just as they have been since the 60s. I love it, man. It's pretty cool. And and she said that there's a lot of pressure for her to transfer production overseas where it's going to be way cheaper and she can make way more money. And she's like, nope, I'm keeping it here. Um, yeah, they're more expensive. And yeah, we would sell more if they were cheaper, but I'm just not doing it. If you haven't noticed, I'm a rich woman. Right. I'm it's doing probably, all right. I've been, yeah. I've been pretty well off since 22. I've, I'm I've got all the acid I can take. <laughs> no. Uh, all right. Should we talk about 
lava lamp tips. Well, I want to say <laughs> I want to say one more thing. Um, another thing that another reason I think Cressida Granger is pretty awesome. She kept um, Edward Craven Walker on as a consultant. Yeah, up into his death. Yeah, even though she she had full control of the company, I think in 1998 or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and he was done. She kept him on as a consultant yeah, that was very until nice. he died. And it was two years later, but she didn't know when he was going to die. Sure. Unless she poisoned him with a lot of acid or something. <laughs> she probably didn't do that. <laughs> but I thought that was a pretty a mark in her favor for sure that she kept the, the, the yeah. guy on, the original creator, the second creator on as a consultant. I'd like to meet her one day. So, yeah, I think we should give some lava lamp tips because, frankly, if I were out there listening, and this happened to me during research, hearing all this stuff, I'd be like, I want a lava lamp. Yeah. So if you buy a lava lamp, there's actually some things you need to know about how to use it correctly. Yeah. So the uh, apparently the bottles are replaceable. So they do run out after about 2,000 hours of operating time. So they sell replacement bottles, which is really nice. Yeah. I don't know about this. To to get rid of your old bottle, make a hole in the metal cap with a sharp point. Yeah, I also saw that you pour can— Pour the liquid out. That y- seems a little unsafe. You're, um, that's what the Mathemus site recommends. Really? Yeah. To re- They say you can recycle the glass. So you just got to get rid of the contents inside. I also saw there's an SF Gate article on how to revitalize vintage lava lamps. Uh-huh. And they say you can get that cap off with vice grips. You should not do that. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Josh and Chuck didn't tell you to do that. Right. I'm just saying I saw that on <laughs> SF Gate. Yeah, I don't know if I'd do that. Right. Uh, so recycle it. You can get the bottle replaced. The liquid eventually will fade. Um, at least the the color in the liquid will. Yeah, over time. Like we said, that 2,000 hours is, um, I mean, that's a lot of hours. Sure. It's a lot of acid. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of trips. Uh, here's another one. The lamp, the very first time you take it out of the box, mm-hmm. it may take up to an hour and a half to start working. But once you have used it, it doesn't take quite that long. Uh, you should have your room be at least 68 degrees Fahrenheit. 20 Celsius. 20 Celsius because uh, I think if it's too cold, it won't work right. Yeah, and you don't want it near an air conditioner or a draft or anything like that. It, or in the sun necessarily. Well, the sun will make the color fade that much faster. Yeah. Right. So you you if it's too cold, it won't work. But then they also have a tendency to overheat too. Yeah, if you come in your room Mm-mm. and you're flying. <laughs> right. And you're... Lava lamp is just a single blob, <laughs> and it's just a big blob. That means it's overheated. Or the universe is ending around your, <laughs> right. you right now. So eight to ten hours, they said, is the max you want to run that thing in a row. So yeah, and, and turn not, it off and let it cool. Yeah, you, that's there you go. That's your fix. You let it cool, and then um, so no more than eight hours usually for normal operation. Um, and then in between uses, let it cool completely. And that's just going to extend the life yeah. of your wax that much longer. Um, but then another reason you don't want to overheat it is because it is possible, and it's probably not possible for it to overheat with the, um, the, with, bulb. the with the bulb itself, yeah. like the glass. But one thing they say is never, ever, ever put that thing on a stove, which some people have done. Yeah. And you can understand why you'd want to do that. You got a hot date or your acid's kicking in faster than you think. And the lamp's not heated up yet. Right. It's it's taking too long. (laughs) So you'd put it on the stove. You don't want to do that. And seriously, at least one person has died from putting a lava lamp on a hot stove. Yeah. It's hard to believe, but you sent this over. Uh, In 2004, 
A young man named Philip Quinn was 24 years old in Kent, Washington. Yeah. Put his lava lamp on a stove. It exploded. Uh, and shards of glass shot into his heart. Yeah. He stumbled in his bedroom and died. And uh, apparently no drugs or alcohol were involved. So it wasn't like he was just like messed up and goofing yeah. around. It sounded like he just wanted to heat it up faster. He, yeah, I, that's what I think. He was impatient, wanted his lava lamp heated up. And then some Yahoo drank it, right? Yeah, some somebody in the in a 1996 article in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, they describe a guy in his mid 60s who drank the the contents of a lava lamp, wavy gravy. Yeah, and then immediately <laughs> regretted it because he spent three months recovering from kidney failure. Man, what a dummy! And then there's one more thing about lava lamps. This is pretty recent. It's kind of awesome. Um, there's a company called Cloudflare. Yeah, I didn't understand this at all. So. Okay, so whenever you're on the web, when you go into a new a new website, you're actually you're you're assigned a code that you use on that website, and it's supposed to be random, or else for some somehow hackers can impersonate you if it's not a random code. Humans are not capable of generating random numbers, and the computers we program by extension aren't either. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can generate a random number. You can't. Eight nine seven six that's, four to ten. It's not random. <laughs> that would be funny if you were like the new internet security guy. You just start spitting out numbers and foil all the hackers. Yeah. Well, what, for now, until they employ you, this company Cloudflare has a, a wall of a hundred lava lamps and a camera recording their movement, and the the completely random, unpredictable movement of these globs on the video screen gets turned into pixels, Mm -hmm. and those pixels get turned into a random number. So this random number is generated by the movement of lava lamps, and that's how about 15% of Internet traffic gets their random number security codes generated by a bank of lava lamps at Cloudflare's offices in San Francisco. That's pretty cool. Of course it's in San Francisco. Of course. They they microdose out there, which I think we've been on the record as looking down on. Uh. Do you want to hear a, an interesting tidbit about random numbers? And yeah. I don't know if this is trick works. Quick, give me another random number. Nine eight six seven five three zero nine. That was a good one. Well, that's my story, though. Apparently, that old song eight six seven five three zero nine Jenny. Right. If you go to a store where you have a rewards program, mm-hmm. and they say enter your number. Apparently, enough people sign up using that number uh-huh. that you can go to any store in the country. And spit that number out, and you will get the whatever discount. Oh, I'm going to try that. Yeah. Nice work. Because, you know, like you're traveling, and you go into the BevMo uh-huh. for a bottle of wine. Sure. They're like, you got your BevMo card? I'm like, oh, well, I'm just in town. We don't have BevMo's in Atlanta. Just say 8675309. That's awesome. And what if they're like, you're the 1,000th uh, <laughs> customer or whatever. You're under arrest. <laughs> and you're tripping, and it's bad news from there. It's got to be the last acid reference. I don't know. Is there one in this listener mail coming up? I bet we can work one in. So uh, if you want to know more about lava lamps, go get one. And maybe, you know, if you've got the coin, splurge for a handmade one from the UK from Athmos. If not, get one from Lava Light here in the US. We won't judge or just get one on Alibaba or Amazon. Whatever floats your boat, okay? Uh, And since I said whatever floats your boat, that means it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this board-breaking follow-up. Sometimes episodes that I think like yeah it was fine mm-hmm. we get tons of reactions well this one we just got something wrong right physics wrong? well that too but we had a, a lot of 
karate and martial arts. Oh, okay, yeah. I people write well. in sure. enthusiasts about board breaking. Right. They really were into this. Yeah. Uh, so this is a kind of a two-parter with a, a little correction at the end. Hey guys, listening to board breaking, it sounds like you had a, a confusing source. I uh, hope I can clear it up. You said that when breaking a board with a karate chop, you want the grain parallel to your hand, but you weren't sure what to do with the grain when striking it with a closed fist. Okay. Uh, what matters isn't the orientation of the grain compared to the hand, but the orientation relative to how the board is supported. Uh, when stressed, the board naturally wants to crack along the grain, not across it. So you want to be sure that the grain isn't oriented so that the fibers in the wood span from one support to the other, like the person holding it, uh-huh. uh, or it'll be too strong. Oh, that when, makes sense. Yeah, when oriented correctly, the grain will be parallel to the hand for an open-handed chop, but that's just coincidental with being oriented correctly compared to the supports. Okay. I hope I was able to say this clearly, guys. Totally. I can understand why your source had trouble putting it clearly. I think by source they mean you. <laughs> uh, that's from David Branson, and then... Uh, we also got a little bit of the uh, formula wrong for... <laughs> force equals mass times acceleration? Yes. He said it's force equals mass times acceleration, not force equals mass times velocity. The thing is with physics, like most of those terms are interchangeable. <laughs> it means the same thing. Uh, Joe Dyer says acceleration is the derivative of velocity. Velocity is the derivative of position. Duh. And Joe also says, yes, I'm an engineer, so I won't bust your uh, chops over this too bad. Yeah. So thanks, Joe, for being nice, and thanks to everyone who wrote in with uh, those corrections and your enthusiasm for board breaking. So Joe wrote both of those? No, no, no. Joe Dyer wrote that one, and then David Branson gotcha. of uh, Branson, Missouri. No. no. I'm just kidding. Okay. He wrote, well, maybe, I don't know. Probably not. He's nice. Missourians are nice. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, thank you, David, and thank you, Joe, and thank you, like you said, to everybody who wrote in. Um, including those of you who wrote in while you were on acid. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can follow us on social media. Go to our website, stuffyoushouldknow.com, and you'll find all the links there. Uh, and you can also send us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 